0: The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works, works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if you were, uh, I'm sorry, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thus the reading of God's word and may he add his blessing to it. Now, I would like for you to notice here the connection that Jesus makes in uh, verse 33 where Jesus says, or pardon me, it's verse 34, where Jesus says or makes a connection between sin and slavery. He says, Everyone who commits Sin is a slave to sin. And you might think, well, how is this so? How is it that one who commits sin is a slave to sin? Well, I would suggest that there are two ways in which this is true. And the first of these is judicially. In other words, from a judicial perspective, um, there is a uh, slavery that is involved or is a consequence of sin. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, sin is like a debt, a moral debt that we owe to God. Remember that Jesus teaches us to ask God to forgive us of our debts. Right now, he's not speaking about financial debts. It's not like he's saying, you know, now when you go to the bank and you get a home mortgage or you get a loan for a new vehicle, then you can come home and you can pray, Father, forgive me of my debts. (laughs) he's not talking about financial debts, but he's talking about sins. He conceives of sin as like a debt that is owed to God. And why would this be the case? Because we owe him our obedience. We owe him righteousness. We owe him a life lived in such a way that it's godly. And, of course, we have all failed to do this. We have failed to pay back what we owe, failed to render him the obedience that is his due. So we owe him our obedience, but we failed to do this, so we have a moral debt. And furthermore, this debt is so great that we could never repay it on our own. Now, in the ancient world, debtors who couldn't pay back what they owe were often mandated by the court to be sold into slavery to pay back their debt. And I believe this is what Jesus has in mind. This is the background of those who commit sin um, are a slave to sin. This is one aspect of slavery's connection to sin. We owe a debt to God that we cannot pay, and so we are like a slave sold on account of our debts. But the problem is, Our debt is so great that we can never repay it, and so we'll be lifelong and, in fact, eternal slaves. He who commits sin is a slave of sin judicially. The moral debt that we owe to God can never be repaid, and so we are uh, debtors forever. And our only hope is if he should forgive us of our debts, and this is why Jesus taught us to pray. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that really is our only hope. But a person who willfully continues in sin, and I believe this is what Jesus means when he says everyone who commits sin, and notice the present tense here, everyone who commits sin, that is everyone who practices sin, is a slave to sin. So that as long as a person willfully continues in sin, he is consigned to slavery, which is to say God's condemnation and judgment. So this is the first way that sin makes us a slave. But the second way that sin makes us a slave is perhaps even um, more... Uh, more discouraging and more profound. And that is that sin is a power that resides within us. It's interesting how the Bible frequently presents sin as if it were an active personal power at work within human beings. In fact, Paul speaks this way in a famous passage in Romans chapter 7 and does so in such a way to bring out this idea of the inherent power of sin and our being subject to sin such that we are enslaved by it in again Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 7 he says what shall we say that the law is sin or sinful by no means yet it had not been if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin And notice how there's a personification of sin in this passage. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. And perhaps you can read your own experience in this when you struggle with temptation, and sometimes it seems to be so difficult to resist, and you find yourself almost as if it were against your will, doing something that you know was wrong. Although we know that Whatever we do, we do because we will to do it. (laughs) But sometimes it almost feels like there is a moral coercion involved and we're almost helpless and resistless um, in the face of sin. But notice again how he speaks of the power of sin. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Notice here in this passage again how he presents sin as this active power that is within us. And, and this is one way, this is a way in which we profoundly become slaves to sin. Um, it's as if we are unable to resist its lure. And what Paul has in mind here is, in fact, our fallen nature that the Bible speaks of in many places. That there's a principle that is at work in us, a propensity or an inclination towards sinful behavior you know it's important for us to know that human beings are not innately good some people would say that well people are born good or maybe if not born good born at least morally neutral and it's only that people learn to do evil things they learn to sin not that it's something that is inherent but the bible teaches us very clearly that the human nature since the fall has become sinful so, that there's an appetite for sin. In the book of Job, it says that man drinks iniquity like water. That is, he has a thirst for it. It's natural to him. Sin is a universal problem. When you were raising your children, you didn't have to teach them to lie because it comes naturally. You don't have to teach them to be selfish, that comes naturally. You have to teach them to be not selfish, you have to teach them to tell the truth. Right? We have a natural inborn inclination to do sinful things, and this is what Paul is talking about here. We're born with a sinful nature. We, we are by nature, Paul says, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3, so that our own nature betrays us. And beyond this, it's the sinful passions of our nature are inflamed by the devil. Paul says that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. So the Lord describes our sad condition very vividly when he speaks of us being slaves to sin. Those who practice sin, those who continue in a state of sin are slaves to sin. The Lord described this in another way when he spoke to Cain. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Think about the metaphor that is being used here. Sin is crouching crouching at the door its desire is for you but you must master it the the idea here is that of uh, a predator who is lying in wait sin is crouching at the door and this is true for all of us sin is like a lion a leopard a bear creeping crawling ready to leap upon us in fact this is the language that uh, peter uses in first peter chapter 5 he says be sober minded be watchful For your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Have you ever seen on a nature show, perhaps, a a video where there's about a lion or a leopard or a tiger, and uh, you see it on a small scale with a domestic cat, you know, playing with a mouse or about ready to pounce on a grasshopper or something, the stealth, the patience waiting for prime opportunity, and then all of a sudden springs into action and grabs its prey. That's the picture that the Bible presents to us of the devil. Be sober. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And those who have not submitted themselves to God are powerless to resist. They're at the devil's mercy. Paul speaks of us in our lost and sinful condition as being ensnared by the devil, captured by him to do his will that is made a slave in Second Timothy chapter 2. And the funny thing is, though, so many people who are under the devil's sway think that they're free. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. I don't have to answer to any man, not even to God. And all the while, they're slaves of their own desires, slaves of their own sinful habits, slaves of sin, slaves under God's judgment and unable by themselves to break their sinful habits. They can stare slavery straight in the face and they can call it freedom. This is the deception that the devil perpetrates upon us to make us think we are free when we're disregarding God. Paul says in Titus 3, in verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and desires, unable to resist the urges that come upon us. I'm a slave to whatever passion in the moment comes upon me, and I have to have what I want to have. As we've talked about before, whenever we find ourselves in that situation, even if it's not a sinful thing that we desire, but we find that desire to be so strong that we feel compelled to pursue it, it is good to learn self-control and tell ourselves, no, even though it may be a lawful thing, I will not pursue it because the strength of the desire in me is too strong. We should be in control of our passions and desires. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then he goes on to say, You were once slaves of sin. Slaves of sin. Same language that Jesus uses in John chapter 8. Uh, Paul uses again in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Slaves of sin. You were once slaves of sin. Now, this is, there's a hopeful note in this because he's writing to Christians, and he says, You were once slaves to sin, which means that we are no longer slaves to sin. Those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ are not under the condemnation of perpetual, eternal servitude to pay off our debt that we could never pay. We're not under God's judgment. And the power of sin within us is broken so that with God's grace, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can successfully repel the devil's temptations. We can stand strong in times of trial. And be true to God. But this comes by submitting ourselves to him. That's why James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But remember what comes before that. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So we can successfully resist the devil and repel temptation by humbly submitting ourselves to God. That's the part that people don't like <laughs> um, because it has put a constraint upon our wishes and upon our behavior to submit to him. But I tell you, there is great freedom in being God's slave. Right? It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul refers to himself in I think every letter that he uh, writes as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that word servant is kind of softened. It's a euphemism like we were talking about in our Sunday school class today. For slave, it's the ordinary Greek word for slave. He's, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't look at that as a burdensome thing or a harsh thing, something difficult, something to be ashamed of. In fact, just the opposite. He glories in the fact that he is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be a slave of somebody. Remember the old Bob Dylan song, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the Lord, it may be the devil, but you've got to serve somebody. Some people think there's a third alternative, which is I, I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to do my own thing. But you see, that's one of the devil's deceptions. You decide you're going to do your own thing. In reality, you're doing the devil's thing. It's really a binary choice, either the Lord or the devil. But when we serve the Lord, when we're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is glorious freedom because we're freed from those sinful, um, uncontrollable passions and desires and sinful tendencies. That's not to say that righteousness always comes easily to us because oftentimes it is a struggle. We still have to contend with the remnant of indwelling sin within us. We still have to contend with the world and with the devil himself who would seek to undo us. But we at least have been given... The opportunity and the power through the grace of the Holy Spirit, to resist, and so appeal or I make my appeal to you to, to submit yourselves to God, and in His power, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, today, I want to talk to you about some miscellaneous temptations that the devil leads us into. Um, one of these is the temptation to feel a sense of entitlement, a sense of entitlement. Uh, The temptation to feel that the world owes you something. And this is a very common temptation today. People feel entitled to, say, an education or the perfect dream job, a big house, a nice car. And one of the ways they indicate this sense of entitlement is by saying, well, I deserve this or that. I deserve that house or I deserve that car or I deserve that promotion or whatever. But I'd be hard-pressed to find any circumstance in which anyone could rightfully say that I deserve any one of these things. Because whatever good things in life we enjoy or any good thing in life that we hope to attain comes as a gracious gift from God. Right? In James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every blessing, every good thing that we have is a gracious Gift of God, not something that we deserve and that we can demand as a right from God. So important for us to understand that. And I should add that the Lord does not usually bestow these blessings except as the result of diligent labor, self-discipline, wise planning. But beware of the temptation to feel uh, a sense of entitlement, a sense of being deserving these things. The devil also likes to tempt people to a sense of of grievance when they don't get what they feel themselves entitled to. They're quick to be offended. They're slow to be reconciled, and nothing is ever good enough for them. They're constantly complaining, always whining, and ever eager to play upon your sympathy. They relish playing the part of a victim. And the devil would like nothing more than to turn you into such a person, to feel a sense of victimhood continually. In his little book, The Screwtape Letters, how many of you read that, by the way, The Screwtape Letters? Just a handful. Oh, you've got to read the book. The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It is a Christian classic. When people ask me, you know, what, what are some books that every Christian ought to read, that's, that's one that I would put in that category, The Screwtape Letters. Um, I think it's just a brilliant analysis by C.S. Lewis of the human condition in terms of its susceptibility to various temptations. So for those of you who have not read the book, uh, the Screwtape letters are letters from an uncle demon named Screwtape to his nephew demon, Wormwood. And Wormwood, like all young uh, demons, have been assigned a patient. That is, they've been assigned a certain person that they are to tempt, to lead into sin, and ultimately to lead to hell. And so the Screwtape letters are a series of letters from Uncle Demon, the mentor, to the younger nephew Demon, Wormwood, um, concerning his patient. And in one of the letters, Lewis has Screwtape counsel his nephew along these lines. He says, Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured and, as a result, ill-tempered. This is that sense of entitlement. I I have a right to something. I don't get it. I feel resentment now that it doesn't come my way to be ill-tempered and to suffer grievance because of this. Remember, this is what the devil tried to do to Job, to make him feel as if he were a victim. And what's more, more than just a victim, a victim of an alleged injustice inflicted on him by God himself, as if God had done him wrong. He tried to get Job to turn against God, to accuse him of injustice, to to have Job curse God to his face. But what was Job's response? When the first round of calamities fell upon him, this is what he said, or this is what it says about him. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return.'" The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, the writer says, Job did not charge God with wrong. Right? Even though he suffered all these terrible calamities, and we would think from a worldly perspective, he has a right to suffer resentment, to suffer grievance. Here was a righteous man who served God faithfully, as it says very clearly in the earlier portions of the text. And he, if he was a modern evangelical Christian, he might have said, I tried serving God, and it didn't work out for me. Look what happened. Look at all these calamities that fell upon me. But no, Job's understanding of God and his faith and trust in God went much deeper than that. He said, look, everything that I had and have now lost, it all came from God. And if he should be pleased to take these things away, that's his business. I will simply bless him. I will praise him. And again, the writer says, in all of this, Job did not charge God with wrongdoing. And then when the devil attacked his health, Job's health, striking him from head to toe with sore boils, and even his wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then again, the writer says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he wasn't moved to self-pity at this point. He gets a little self-pityish later. But at this point, he and he doesn't accuse God. He doesn't have a sense of grievance and resentment. But he still maintains his integrity. And you are going to find, if you haven't lived long enough yet to experience it, you're going to find that sometimes life is hard. You're not likely to suffer as much as Job suffered Sometimes people are going to do you wrong, and you'll have more than your fair share of troubles, it seems. You'll find yourself in a set of life circumstances that you never would have chosen for yourself. You might suffer a financial setback, a loss of a job, a diagnosis of a terrible disease, an act of betrayal by a friend or a family member. You're going to attempt to do some things which you think you have the fondest hope of achieving success, but it's going to fail and you'll suffer disappointment, you'll suffer pain. This is the common lot of man in this world. But the thing to remember in all of this is that all of these things are common to the lot of man in this fallen world, in this life. And Job, Job says, man is born to trouble as, soon, as surely as the sparks fly upward. Right? It helps us to know that going in. So that it doesn't take us by surprise, and we can be prepared, and we can place our trust in God, and we have the example of Job, and we have the example of Joseph, the patriarch who suffered terrible injustice and cruelty, even by his own brothers. We even have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God allowed to suffer com- with complete, without any. How do I don't want to say this? You know the. Everybody else has, uh, you know, a certain desert towards suffering. In other words, they deserve some kind of suffering because we have all sinned. But Jesus didn't deserve any suffering at all. But God allowed him to suffer because there was another purpose that God had for him. And so we need to fortify ourselves with these things also and not allow ourselves to wallow away in self-pity, not allow ourselves to relish the status of victim, not nurse a grievance, because the devil will use these things to make you bitter and make you turn against God. The devil will also tempt you to make excuses for your sins. And this is what our first parents did in the garden after they partook of the forbidden fruit. The Lord confronted Adam and said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam's response was, yep, that was me. I'm sorry, Lord, I did it. Now, it was, he shifted the blame. He pointed to Eve and said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she she took of the fruit and, and I ate. He shifted the blame from himself to her, but it was really, as we pointed out before many times, beyond that, he was implicitly saying that the fault lies with God. You're the one who gave her to me, and she's the one who gave me the fruit, so you bear some responsibility in this, God. Shifting the blame. And when God confronted Eve, of course, she also shifted the blame to the serpent. And it's true that the serpent tempted her, deceived her, but she was still responsible for the choice that she made. And that's true for each one of us, right? We can always find, as we think in our own minds, some extenuating circumstance as to why our particular choice of uh, sin is, under the circumstances, acceptable, or at least understandable and really not so bad. Right? We make excuses, we rationalize. The blame game originates with the fall. Don't blame other people for your sins and your failures. Don't plead extenuating circumstances and don't pretend that the rules that apply to other people don't apply to you. That what would be wrong for others is okay for you. No, on the contrary, we should be very quick to admit when we have done wrong, admitting it to God first, and most importantly, to confess our sin to God. And then if that sin involves a violation of somebody else's rights, we've sinned against a person, we need to make it right with them too. confess our sin to that person and set the matter right as much as as possible. The devil also (coughs) likes to tempt us with a constant quest for novelty, for something new for something new. He does this by stirring up a sense of discontent with what we have, discontent with the blessings that we have. He leads us to become bored with the blessings that we have enjoyed for a long time so that we come to take them for granted and we lose our sense of gratitude for them. There's an interesting statement that was made about the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, that they spend all their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, this was their particular proclivity. They were philosophers or wannabe philosophers, and they were always wanting to hear some new philosophy or some new twist on an old philosophy. Some people treat the doctrines of the Bible that way. Oh, I've heard the gospel story so many times. I've read the Bible enough. It becomes boring, becomes insipid. I'm so familiar with it. So they lose interest in it, and they're led off into various heresies. Some take this approach to relationships. They're always looking for something new, or should I say someone new. You've heard of the so-called seven-year itch, that after seven years of marriage, the interest that husbands and wives have in each other declines, and infidelity and divorce rates rise. In the first years of marriage, there's a thrill because you're getting to know each other. Everything is new and exciting. You're experiencing life together as a couple for the first time. But before long, life settles into a, to a routine, same schedule at the same job, coming home at the same time to the same wife to the same kids, and the routine, the mundane affairs of life loses all of all of its pizzazz. You know, the excitement is gone. In reality, all of these things are tremendous blessings, but the devil uses familiarity to breed contempt. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. Let me quote C.S. Lewis once again. He has screw tape right to Wormwood. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. The horror of the same old thing. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. The humans live in time and experience reality successively To experience much of it, therefore, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, from the devil's perspective, God, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them, just as he has made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change any more than eating, an end in itself, he has balanced the love of change in them for a love of permanence. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the very In the very world he has made, by that union of change and permanence which we call rhythm, he gives them the seasons, each season different every year, but yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty, yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. But this idea, I think, is very important for us that there's great value and there's pleasure in change, but there's also great value and great pleasure in permanence as well. And God has given us the rhythms of life to help reinforce that. But for some people, it's like there's always a quest for something new, something different, something I haven't experienced before, some new relationship or whatever. Beware of thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence if i had that other job that other cow cow <laughs> that other car that other wife you know the grass is always greener somebody somebody has it better than me and if i only had what that other person has then things then i'll really be happy i'll be set in life this desire for constant novelty is a real threat this is all a lie of the devil Find joy in the simple pleasures of life and seek contentment with what God has already given, right? That sounds like such simple counsel, and it is, but there's great wisdom in it. It doesn't originate with me. Paul says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. In Hebrews, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And I think that this is a counsel that not only applies to money, but to other things in life as well. He could have, as easily said, keep yourself free from a roving eye and a wandering lust and be content with the spouse you have. Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content and this, by the way, is the context for what he goes on to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It doesn't mean that we can claim, I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me, therefore I can fly to the moon under my own power. He's right? specifically talking about enduring various circumstances in life, whether prosperity or poverty, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever circumstances life throws at me through Christ, whether it's suffering whether it's persecution, whether it's great joy and blessing, whatever I experience, I can uh, do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. So beware of novelty. Beware of playing the part of a victim. Beware of nursing a grievance. Beware of, of uh, always thinking you've got to have more. Be content and uh, recognize all of these as temptations that the devil brings our way. You know he is he is a master uh, student of human nature. He has been observing human beings now for six thousand years since the fall, and he knows the kinds of things that that uh, are likely to tempt us, and likely to tempt us in our particular situation in life. Whether a man we are a man or a woman, whether we're married or single, whether we're rich or poor, he knows the kinds of things that tempt human beings, and he can tailor it to the personalities in each of these different stations of life. Uh, perhaps we'll talk more about that next week. But my point is, the devil is very smart. Um, he's cunning. He's deceptive. He knows us, I think, in many ways better than we know ourselves, not as well as God knows us. But sometimes the devil knows our motivations and can can uh, uh, suggest things to our minds that, that uh, prove to be temptations to us that we never would have suspected. I like the counsel that's given by Thomas a Kempis in his book uh, The Imitation of Christ. He says let no, let uh, consider thyself I'm sorry consider no one weaker than thyself. Consider no man no consider no man's strength weaker than thine own. You know, and I think sometimes we need to remember that we need to be humble enough to know that we are open to temptation, not that we need to always go around thinking that uh, Satan is you know, so powerful that he's going to inevitably destroy us, but as we walk daily with God, trusting him, learning, growing, opening ourselves to the influence and leadership of the Holy Spirit, we can successfully live as Christians in this fallen world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.